you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me. Um, I have a really special guest today. Uh, Eileen, you're there, right? I am. Eileen, when did the book? When did your book Smacked come out? I'm going to talk about it in a minute, but it, it came out like right before the pandemic, right? It did. It was released on February 4th, and so I got about four and a half weeks to <laughs> tour, and then everything shut down. This is Eileen Zimmerman, my guest today. And very briefly, I mean, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, with her new memoir, relatively new memoir, Smacked. Very quick overview, um, as it was written, a journalist pieces together the mysteries surrounding her ex-husband's descent into drug addiction while trying to rebuild a life for her family, taking readers on an intimate journey into the world of white-collar drug abuse, unquote. And with that, Eileen, I really appreciate you joining me today because... It's funny, as, as a fellow writer with you, you know how you always get asked, like, where do stories come from? How do you find <laughs> stories? I, right. The way this found you, I mean, looking at what you were doing in your career at that point, um, did you ever think for a minute you would wind up writing a memoir at this phase of your life involving what this involves? Because, you know, again, usually writers plan and plot out what they're going to do, but this really came to you in a really strange way, and to your credit, you, you, you recognize what was here in terms of story, but what was it like when you first began realizing that immediately after your, after your husband Peter's death, which we'll get to in a minute, um, you know, at what point do you start thinking about this as a story and something that you could present and, and do what you've done with? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And to answer the first uh, question you had, no, I never imagined that this would be the book, the first book that I would be writing. I think as a journalist my whole career. I thought about different books I would write. Um, I toyed with writing a book about the cost of raising a child in the U.S., like real nonfiction-y kind of books. Right, right. A memoir about what it was like to be divorced and a business writer and not know much about money, which was actually my situation. And all of that, of course, fell by the wayside when Peter, my ex-husband, died. And I think the moment I knew there was a story, wasn't yet a, a book, but a story, was at his house when he died, uh, the police came and the medical examiner came because um, we weren't sure yet the cause of death, just that he had died. And uh, it became clear there was a lot of drug paraphernalia around that I, in my shock, didn't really take in and understand what I was seeing. And the medical examiner tried to suggest to me that he had died perhaps from an overdose. And I just said, oh, no, you know, that's impossible. Not him. And she said, Actually, it is, and we see a lot of this now, which was kind of highly successful men and women, I think more men than women, who were dying of overdoses. And I remember the journalist in me thinking, there's a story here, but I can't do anything about that right now. And so it mm-hmm. kind of stayed in the back of my mind, and the more that I unraveled what happened to Peter, the more it became clear that there was a story there and a legitimate story to write about. Well, the way the book opens is, is truly harrowing. I mean, the book opens with your discovery. You've tried to reach Peter a couple of times to no avail. So you, you're living in San Diego. He's, you know, built for himself sort of his own 
bachelor palace, right? <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. And and you're uh, you're living in the house, I guess, where you would live before when you were still married. And you, right. you get concerned and you, and you rush over there. And I mean, it's it's gripping. It's something. I mean, oh, the opening you. is it's really um, really compelling. And I think the fact that you bring a journalist sensibility to it is, is really what brings it to life because you're Thank you're you. checking all the boxes of this of the who, what, where. Yet you're within that you're interweaving the emotion of what it's like. You say in the book you had never seen anybody. This was your first dead body, essentially, right? Yes. Yeah. And it was I mean, it was terrifying, especially. I was 51. He was 51. I just, I didn't know at this point, at that point in my life, anyone that, you know, that had died other than someone that was much older than me. And certainly not in this way. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to say because I don't have a lot of experience with death firsthand, but I can say my gut instinct was that it did not look like a good death. It looked like a crime scene more than an actual somebody who just might, like my grandparents died in their sleep kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, it was, it was terrifying. Well, beyond that, as you you continue to write and then you pick it up later on in the book, of course, um, you've got your kids, your your son and daughter now that you've got to alert in this moment. And it, again, and I don't know, I, again, as a writer, I'm looking at it on a couple of different <laughs> You're levels. looking at it from a writer's, right? Well, but the thing that really intrigued me that I think made it um, far more tense than, than a conventional you know, book would is you're writing a lot of it in the present tense, yeah. right? Yeah, that was on purpose so that I- Yeah, I, I thought that was incredible. I think that oh, decision- well, I mean, that decision may, puts you in the moment and it makes it, uh, there's an urgency, obviously, to, to present tense writing like that. Yes. But I thought that was, inc- I don't know who, if, that, if that was your that decision. Was, that was, was incredibly effective. I have, a, I have and had a great editor at Random House who's like legendary there, Kate Medina, and we talked mm-hmm. about it. And I kind of wanted to do it present tense because you start out knowing there's been a death. And, I, yeah. and the way to keep people's interest was kind of bring them along with me in real time to feel my terror and my confusion and all of that. So that I'm glad that worked. I have gotten a lot of good feedback, so I'm glad I chose to go that way. She's a very good editor. Well, you don't see it a lot. That's the other thing too. It's it's, it's rare that you see it, you know, maybe right. a passage or two, but the fact that you carry it out in that voice and presence, I thought was, was really effective. But when it gets to that part where you're bringing the kids in, Oh, yeah. um, I think as a parent of kids, you, you and I are basically the same age. Our kids right. are about the same age. So I'm reading it on this kind of parallel feeling. I'm thinking, sure. okay, what would it be like to call your kids in that moment? And yes. I have to tell you, I think your kids as characters within the story are also really remarkable. Oh, um, I, I do. T- I do, too. And it's exactly that. That was of all the like we all had trauma counseling afterwards. Yeah. And I think initially I thought, oh, it's going to be for my vision in my mind of Peter's body, his prone body. But in the end, I wound up working a lot more on that moment where I have to tell my children, which is, was probably the worst part of the whole thing. What were they like, you know, once they realized that this is going to go beyond the event, become a story, it's going to be shared. How were they through the writing process? I mean, were you bouncing things off of them? Were you strictly writing from your own viewpoint and then showing them things? What was their point of view knowing you were doing this? It was very complicated because they were also grieving and, you know, somewhat in, in denial about some things, ashamed in other ways. My daughter had revealed to me um, only recently, like in the last year, how much shame she felt that her father had died this way because, yeah. you know, I mean, we had different lives. He was 
much wealthier than I was after we divorced. I stayed sort of middle class to upper middle class. He became much wealthier. And so my kids were had these two lives, me with this like much more middle class neighborhood kind of life on a strict budget. And their dad, who had this fabulous beach house and every, you know, all this privilege, they went to private school. And so for her to have a father that died, you know, an addict, that was very shameful for her. She, you know, because he was also so well educated and successful and all of that. So there was that. Um, and when I decided to share, it was first with the New York Times. And in 2017, I published a story called The Lawyer, The Addict, which mm-hmm. which was just not not just but was the cover of the Sunday business section. But, you know, in the Sunday paper, I always imagine people go to the style section first, <laughs> or, you know, read the front page. And, so it, but it got an enormous amount of traction. It got about two million shares and which to me. I realized that I had hit a nerve that something was happening in the country. And for my kids, when sharing that was the kind of the big moment where we had to decide if it was something they were comfortable with me doing. And uh, we had a lot of conversations about it. And my reasons were that one, I'm a writer like you, and I needed to process my, what happened to me too. And that was how I wanted to do it. And I felt like if we didn't share it, then their dad died in vain. You know, the you know, mm-hmm. he died, the firm kind of rolled over his dead body and started making money immediately again. And no one would know what happened to him, really. And it felt like like I, I had a feeling that there were other people in the country suffering in this way. And to bring light to it would only make the profession better, would make corporate America better, would make families feel better. I just felt like there was a lot of good reasons to tell the truth. Well, there there had to have been a moment where you realized this was tip of the iceberg stuff. It wasn't just something that your husband did in a yeah. void or a vacuum, right? Where right. it becomes apparent to you that this is, uh, it's a pandemic of its own, right? I mean, this is something that's in going some ways, on. some ways, yeah. Like Absolutely. right this second, this is going on in thousands of boardrooms and all around the world. Uh, right. These kinds of addictions are being these white collar addictions, but right. we don't see them because they're 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 covered and veiled in all of sort of the trappings of of success and all yeah. the layers of protection and all that. We just it isn't like walking down, you know, a, a, an inner city street and seeing somebody shooting up in an alleyway. This is exactly. they don't have those protections. It, like, it like doesn't people. manifest itself the same way in the way we're used to seeing addiction. And, and also, I think there's a lot less sympathy. You know, when you have a lot of money and, and you have the resources to help yourself in a way, someone who is really low income or indigent or, you know, maybe, in, you know, very, very sick or mentally ill in a way that's got to be treated first. Like, you know, there's so there's a lot of a lack of sympathy. It's sort of like, uh, you know, here's this rich guy that decided not to get help. But, you know, I think we are all worthy of sympathy and compassion. And there's a lot of suffering in this socioeconomic group. You know, and there's a lot of suffering all across the spectrum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things to me, one of the sort of great literary ironies in the book thematically is the fact you write very eloquently later about the fact that while you were married, you felt if not under maybe his thumb, but not really having a chance to thrive in your own right to, to, to write in a way and explore things um, that yeah. would have helped you grow as a writer, Right. Right, absolutely. And then lo and behold, the event that actually allows for that is his death. There's there's a real sort of tragic irony in that. that there it's the, is, yeah. The releasing of him that all of a sudden presents this idea to you that has become so acclaimed, and we'll talk about it in a little while now, optioned. Um, and so this is an idea, I mean, you, you know, your memoir Smacked is, is just, it's uh, it's been read in so many corners and embraced by so many different kinds of people. Do, do you ever look at the irony of, the, of his passing sort of presenting this opportunity 
for you? Oh my gosh. Yes, I do. Believe me. And it's a topic for therapy. Like, yeah, I <laughs> can imagine. There, because I, I did feel, I mean, I loved Peter, but he was also very difficult to be, he was difficult to be married to. He was very difficult to be divorced from because he was also somebody who wanted control. Mm-hmm. So for example, after we divorced, you know, I required a certain amount of help, spousal support and child support to live in San Diego as a writer with, sure. you know, an ex-husband that was a partner. And Every month, instead of just putting it on kind of an automatic transfer, I would have to wait to see the money in my account, and I couldn't pay my mortgage, you know, without it. And sometimes he would delay it till the end of the day, and it was kind of a reminder each month of the fact that I didn't have him anymore, you know. And I think, I don't know that it was conscious, but there was a lot of power and control around money in my relationship with him, and I think that was just... You know, I think there was a lot of dysfunctional stuff about money in our relationship on both our parts. So, there, so there's that. And so now he dies. And the thing that I, the thing I wind up writing about is the only thing I can think about is his death right in this tragic way. And then and it, it's, um, you know, it gets good critical feedback. And like you say, it was optioned. And it does feel like um, it feels hard to accept that that that's what happened, because it feels sometimes it feels almost like it's not right. Um, I can tell you that in my wildest imaginings, I did not want this to be the book I wrote. I would much rather Peter be alive and be a co-parent and be a father to his kids. But yes, you're right. It is a very tragic irony that this became the story of my life. But, you can, of my but life. as a writer, I mean, obviously you can't control where a story comes from. And it's like, no. you, as, as a writer, you're just reacting and responding to someone else's behavior. Uh, you, you didn't create the situation, obviously. You're just responding right. to it. So That's exactly right. But P- Peter had a lot of, um, you know, his voice was in my head for a long time, sort of like... Um, I mean, this is how powerful he was. After he died, my kids and I, all three of us, had separate dreams about him coming back and being angry. And he was not an angry father. He was a really loving, like when he was present, he was wonderful to, with his kids, super patient, really kind and loving. But yet we all felt that power. So, you know, there is this odd twist of events. You're right. I couldn't control this. I didn't, I didn't cause... I didn't make Peter's choices for him. I didn't cause his death. But writing about it, I think, was, you know, it was tough. I think what was really interesting as well is the fact that you, what I really liked about the book is that you didn't just treat what happened. You went all the way back to the beginning. We get a chance to, and again, the pacing of the book, the way you you, you sort of bend the timeline to go back to the beginning and, and, and then revisit you know, right. the present, I think, is also very effective. But when you go to the beginning and we watch this, this uh, love affair, which at first was really a, a sort of an annoyance to you. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> but watching that arc, it, to me, there, there are several little books sort of within a book here. We, we watch that love story early on, which you going upstate and finally, yeah. you see him playing a band, right? When you're just out right, of college, right. essentially. And it hits you that, hey, you know what? He's got other aspects to him, which are interesting. So we get to watch this thing blossom and bloom. And I think that... Also, uh, I mean, it makes the story, I think, all the more tragic when, when we know where it's going because yeah, of how you idea, set it up. Right. To put it into context rather than just talk, it's to sh- also to show the whole person. I mean, he was a, he was wonderful in the beginning and it was really he's you know, there's a million things about him that were great. 
along with the things that were problematic. And that was the idea is that no one's all anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, what was it like for you to go back though, without ever, you know, that you, you weren't planning on writing a memoir about you, but when you're writing about that relationship early on, you are writing your life story as well. How was that for you to go back and unpack all those moments of wanting to be a writer, getting your first jobs, all the frustrations and triumphs that go along with those, those early years. How was that for you as a writer? It was really difficult. And as a journalist, I am not used to writing about myself. So this whole exercise was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But my editor was the one who had pushed me to make it more of a memoir. I had envisioned it more as Peter's story, taking us through like what's going on in the professional world, what's going on with our kids in terms of substance use. And she said, no, you know, you have to be the emotional heart of this story. And so we need to know your story. And so as uncomfortable as it was, it was also, you know, it was really nice to remember all those good times. And it was also really sad because there was all this potential to be a much better functional couple than we were. Um, but we, I think we weren't either healthy enough or we didn't understand enough about ourselves and each other to get there. So that, that was, kind of, was a lot of regret and sadness, but also it was really nice to revisit that and kind of understand what happened. I was going to say, I would, I would guess that it was almost therapeutic or it would have been therapeutic to go back and do that. Um, And there is kind of a, I mean, I don't like the word closure, but it was a (laughs) chance to go back and put, you know, connect some dots and remember some things that really were wonderful memories, chance for your kids to to learn about your early years together. And I think that there was probably a great benefit to that as well, right? Absolutely. In fact, my kids, when they read it, they were like, I didn't know that about you and dad. And that was wonderful. That was great. Yeah. And, and again, it, it certainly then it provides the context and the foundation for where we're going. And after the break, we're going to get to where we're going, because after you discover your ex-husband's um, body at his home, it sets off this, uh, it's one part detective story, it's one part investigative piece, and it's one, po- one part, I mean, mourning widow, it really is. And I think those, you know, those qualities all blended together are what make Smack such a special read. My name is Chris Septing, my guest is Eileen Zimmerman, and we'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right.
You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining me in The Moment today. I'm back with a terrific journalist and now author, acclaimed author, Eileen Zimmerman, talking about her recent memoir. Memoir is a weird word for this, by the way. I, mean, it's max. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a memoir, but it's, it's, it's way more. I think that almost, I don't want to dismiss it because it's more than a memoir. There's a lot of other big themes going on here. Um, something I was curious about, when you, when you discover your husband um, tragically in his room and he's, he's no longer alive, do you, how soon as it before you begin thinking about telltale signs that may have been indicative of, of, of the drug abuse of what was going on, the shooting heroin, the, the meth and all of that. At what point do you start thinking back, okay, wait a minute, that was a sign there. That was a sign there. I mean, do we, do you think we all have blinders up in a sense where we don't want to see things like that? I do. I do. And I think I started thinking about it probably in the, like, I mean, when it first happened, my first thought was like, you know, what am I going to do for, you know, insurance and income? And, you know, what am I, I, let me get my kids some counseling and all, and then, you know, his firm was like, is there going to be a memorial service? People need closure. So I was kind of concerned with that, I think in the first week or so, but after that, I really did start to think like, how could I miss this? And honestly, Peter had like every symptom in the book. He actually wasn't um, injecting heroin, but he was injecting opioids and cocaine. Right. So it was something called a speedball. Mm -hmm. Um, who knows if he would have gotten to heroin? It, it could have been at some point he did, but um, and he was using meth at some point too. But a lot of cocaine and opioids. And um, I did start to think back, and I thought, what did I miss? What did I miss? And I realized how much I missed. I mean, all of these physical signs, the lying, the the crazy monologues. I mean, at some point he was texting to a simple question like, "Are you going to be able to pick up the kids or something?" And it would be like this all caps gigantic text and I would think like what and he'd be talking about you know everything under the sun except one time he texted like what he had for lunch and I was like okay but will you be home you know when when your son gets there kind of thing and I just thought like oh he's really stressed out he's really tired you know he's he's just not sleeping enough you know and all I just had all of these other reasons than the the most obvious one well, the other thing too, you, you write um, very poignantly through your kids' eyes, your son and daughter's eyes, when they're visiting him or taking trips with him or doing yeah. these things, and they're noticing all of these uh, and real escalation in health issues that are right. sort of vaguely described by him as being colds and flus, and yes. I guess the things that addicts do to just sort of you know <laughs> throw some sand in the air and make you not look. Right, but, exactly. But you, but you do it so many times where the pattern becomes evasiveness, right? And he's late for things. And then not showing up for things. And again, I just wondered if you thought back because it's, to read the descriptions, it just uh, he, he clearly something was going oh, on. Yeah, but we absolutely. but we just don't we just don't expect that. It's just hard. You, you would never think that, right? So it's you, easy you to wouldn't. accept excuses of other illnesses and things like that. And I think I think a really important point in this is that he had so much power over all of us, and that power was largely financial, but also. He was very, very smart. So whenever you needed an answer to something, Peter had it. And also he was a lawyer. So he was a lawyer and a scientist. So if, you know, my son at one point, um, like a lot of teenagers, had some acne and the doctor, dermatologist was asking us, like, do you want this drug or this? And I remember calling Peter and he's like, you know what, that one is an oral, but we, you know, there's been some, like, he just knew everything about it. Right. He had the drug handbook. Like, so he, he was a guy that knew things and 
So as children, my kids were not going to challenge their father. And, and I was very dependent on him. And he made it very clear to me very often that I needed him. And my job was to make his life easier if I wanted my life to be running smoothly. And I, sh- I should have challenged that, but I didn't. So I sort of left being his wife and became kind of like, almost like a work wife, personal assistant. I kept the family calendar. I reminded him of, you know, the kids' doctor's appointments. I mm-hmm. took care of all the family stuff. And he just kind of showed up when it was important for him, you know, when he could show up. And so there's all that going on. And so here's this guy that's losing weight. His hair is thinning. His teeth are yellow. He looks kind of jaundiced. I'm noticing that he has cuts on his hands and the sides of his face. He keeps breaking things. He said that he broke a finger. He had a problem with his hip. Like all of these things that were probably because he was really addicted. And he also had a systemic infection, which is common to intravenous drug abusers, which is um, acute infective endocarditis, which is an infection that lodges itself in one's heart and then spreads to the rest of the body. So he was having some cognitive issues because it was in his brain. But He looked like somebody that might be going through chemotherapy, but I knew he wasn't. Um, And then I I decided that maybe he had an eating disorder. So the one thing that didn't present itself was drug addiction because I just thought, why on earth would he do that? He's too smart. Too smart. He's a chemist. He knows exactly what those chemicals are going to do to his body. Why would he risk that? So that just seemed out of the question and I didn't even consider it. And then, of course, afterwards, I I thought to myself, why didn't I just ask him? Why didn't I just come out and ask him? He might have lied, but at least he would have known I was on to him. And who knows how that would have changed things. Well, again, you only can do what you know in the moment. And and he was a persuasive power over everybody. And I think the other thing, too, it's interesting. When I finished it, I read it again in the last couple of days. And I read it right when it came out. And the thing that struck me this time that I didn't feel the first time at the very end was I felt, it's going to sound odd, but uh, almost relieved that he had not developed another serious relationship because that may have precluded any of this from happening with what you did, right? Right. Even though you were divorced, it seemed like there still was some sort of bridge that was there. Maybe it was out of necessity for the kids, but there was still a lot of activity. Neither of you sort of moved on in completely separate lives, right? No, we had a very codependent divorce. (laughs) Right. Well, (laughs) but we did. Yeah. And that I think allowed for a book like this, because in the absence of that, maybe you wouldn't have even had the access, right, to go in. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I think the thing is, Peter, like a lot of high power partners in law firms didn't have a lot of good friends anymore because they would have been colleagues, but these colleagues are all competing with one another. That's the nature of the law at this level. So, you know, he had grow, you know, I mean, his, his family didn't live nearby, so we were it. Um, And he had some friends, you know, and he dated, you know, periodically, but uh, he wound up still talking to me about his family, about problems at work. I used to say, don't you have anybody else to complain to? And he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, and I, and I felt for him, you know, I, I still really cared about him deeply. He'd been my friend for half my life. You know, we had kids together. So I did feel like he was family. And I think you're right. I don't think every divorce is like that, but we did really try. We had a mediator. We probably had the least expensive divorce for an attorney in the history of attorney divorces. We just (laughs) did it ourselves with a mediator. We didn't want Mm -hmm. a ton of conflict for our kids. So yeah, I, I would say, Chris, you're right. We had a very connected divorce, which which made me very concerned about him because I loved him and I knew he was suffering from something and I couldn't figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. Holly, once his death happens, and you mentioned earlier that the law firm he worked for wanted to have a, a service memorial. So yes. 
employees could feel some sort of closure. But what was the the feeling you got from them? They, they obviously were concerned. This was not the sort of thing they would want to become very public, right? This was something they yes. were less interested in in publicizing. What, what was the feeling you got from them um, in the immediate aftermath of his of his death? It was like a dichotomous thing. Like on the one hand, HR and all the people that manage the firms, like. Uh, uh, insurance policies and things like that. They were incredibly generous. They really helped me. They they put my they kept my children on Peter's insurance through the end of the year until I could figure things out. They donated money towards my daughter's next semester's tuition because I didn't have it and there was no, there was you know there was I didn't mm-hmm. have access to Peter's bank accounts and he had been spending a lot on drugs so I didn't know what there would be, um, and I certainly didn't have the money for her tuition. I just. I didn't, I didn't have that kind of income. Um, so they were super helpful, but then, you know, he had an, his boss who was like the managing partner of the San Diego office, which was sizable at that point, who was helpful. I also, I got this sense that I was to keep quiet. It was never said directly, but I can tell you that I definitely got that feeling. And there were some things that happened that I can't talk about just Mm -hmm. because I can't, but I, I definitely got the feeling that I was supposed to make this go away that we were supposed to have. It a, reminded me a little bit of the movie, The Firm, or the book, it, The Firm. It was totally John Grisham. Like, I mean, it wasn't yeah. out. I don't think, I don't think the firm management in Palo Alto had any knowledge of how he died. I really don't. And I can't say if Jeff, whose name is in the book, knew precisely what was wrong with Peter. I had said to him at that, he showed up at the house when Peter died, which was odd, but he said a neighbor called him who knew Peter and saw there were police and fire engines and an ambulance outside. And he, I said, why didn't you, you were friends for, you know, 15 years. Why didn't you call him into an office and say, what is going on with you? And he just said, we don't get into each other's private stuff. You know, we don't do that. Thinking maybe, you know, what if Peter had cancer and didn't want to tell anyone about it? Would it be his place to be asking? You know, so that, that is a good point. But I also felt like this is your friend and he was clearly sick. But, you know, I could ask the same of myself, although I did ask Peter and he kept saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a flu. I can't get rid of the flu. And then he was he was diagnosed with a thyroid condition and he said it was that. And so I just decided like, oh, OK, he's that's the truth. Um, I, yeah. I think one of the most chilling moments for me as a reader was uh, when you're going through some of his things and you have his phone and yeah. you're able to look at his text messages in the, in the lead up to his death. And you're, you're reading the exchanges between he and dealers. And it's really this, uh, this peak that most people don't get to see of of just what those exchanges, uh, the sort of coded language they use urgency and the immediacy and the real desperation. What was that like? That's a very good way to talk about it. That's very writerly. (laughs) Well, Um, I'm just, I'm just describing what it was like. And I thought, wow, what a moment. And, And again, you as the storyteller here, when you see those things, all of a sudden, now you've got this sort of literary connective tissue, right? That that yes. allows you to get a glimpse inside that process. Excellent term, yeah. And it, it, yeah, it was it was so eye opening. Like you say, I was I was all I kept thinking was, how does he know these terms? Like this it, guy. Well, you know, that, that's the thing. Yeah. He, what you were quoting him as, it was like a different character. It talking. was like a different per exactly. I was like, how does he know what are blondies? What is yeah. paper? What are, you know, like he was, he had all these go-go juice, which I think has to do with meth. Like he had all of these, the lingo. And I thought, when did he learn this? Like I used to know him so well. Like I thought, how did he, how did he know this? This is like have discovering someone you think, you know, like the back of your hand has an entirely secret life. Yeah. Um, so that was very, and it was very frightening to think 
that these dealers were people that lived in the suburbs and had mortgages and houses, husbands, wives, kids. You know, they were a lot like him, only they had less money because they were dealing. Yeah. Right. And I know you were, you were tempted at least to want to reach out to those people, right? Yeah. Just for some kind of information. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's the netherworld, the real underbelly of that. And today it's on a phone. Like you, again, the fact that you, all of you were sort of now able to go through his life and really sort of see what was underneath the surface. I mean, I thought right. that was written in a very compelling way as well. And, and again, there's a chilling quality to that because you, you think you know somebody and then you realize that addiction, it creates false lives, right? All these facades and second lives and third lives. Exactly. And, lives and these on. false connections. I mean, these people, I think he thought of them as friends, but they weren't friends. I mean, they, they helped to kill him. You know, and I think when I wanted to track them down, it was to say, look what you did. But then um, a friend of mine who's an attorney that wasn't the estate attorney, I had said, I'm going to, I'm going to find them. And he said, you don't want to do that. He said, that's just going to, that's not going to bring you any peace. He said, I'm sure they know he's dead, you know, and I, and I let it go. Yeah. There's even one person who's texting there who doesn't hear back from him yeah. and says, it seems almost jokingly, are you dead? He's like, hey, bro, are you dead there? And I wanted to text back, actually, I am. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, no, I it's funny. And I was rooting for you there. But then I, thought, I would agree with the people who counseled you. It may have felt good in the moment, but I can't imagine any good really coming from it because that's, you know, that's what they are. That's who they prey upon people. And, but it's a two-way street, you know. And, it's a, and they would want to protect themselves. And so I would wind up in danger. And, you know, they, it was clear where I lived and, you know, I, you know, and they could harass me to stop me. And so I sure. just thought, you know, I, ha- I have to let this go. And also, what, was, what good would it do? It wasn't going to bring Peter back. Um, it might have stopped. But, you know, and I had thought, oh, maybe I'll give all this to the police. And the police were like, yeah, we're, 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 we're doing what we can. Like, you know, they, they, I think they had lots of leads. You know, it's, it's very hard. It's very insidious. It's, yeah. it's everywhere is, I think, what I learned. Eileen, what's it like then when you start to take another step back and think, okay, there's a larger stage here where this is going on in a lot of other places, and you decide to begin examining uh, the cultural framework of of white-collar addiction? And that's a much deeper dive, um, different than anything you've done before as a journalist, right? right? What's what's that like for you as a writer to, to undertake this? It's very timely, obviously, very important topic, but it's a it's a murky one too, and it's a kind of dangerous one as well. Right. It is because, you know, these are a lot of the people that I wanted to interview were successful professionals who didn't want um, other people to know that they had addiction problems. So I had to find a way to get people to trust me and to talk to me and to understand that I would not reveal who they were. Um, You know, I worked very closely with them to mask their identities, but I needed to know who they were as a journalist so that I could... um, you know, defend myself if I needed to, that I hadn't made it up or anything. Um, And so I wound up, one of the things I did was I posted on, uh, it was very 21st century, on Hacker News, which is a big forum for technologists, but also scientists, some attorneys, medical professionals, and toplawschools.com, which is not just for law students. There are partners and associates. It's a big forum for lawyers Mm -hmm. asking about people that had um, substance abuse problems, what they were seeing in their workplaces, if they were struggling. And on Hacker News, at least, I posted that, and in 10 hours, I had 600 responses. And then I had other people saying, "Um, you have to get an encrypted email or we're not going to respond to you. So then I got a secure and encrypted email. And on uh, toplawschools.com, and lawyers are far more guarded, uh, I got about, 
I would say 75, 80 responses, which was a lot. Um, and a lot of them from junior associates, but some partners and some senior associates talking very candidly about what they were experiencing at work, the pressures, the anxiety, the depression, and the drug use and alcoholism, and, and did, also in Hacker News as well. Did you look at it like... Um not knowing exactly what they wrote to you, it almost seems like they were relieved that there may have been an outlet to at least sneak some of this information out about- Oh, I I agree. I mean, I got some lengthy, lengthy emails from people and long comments. People would then write to me privately talking all about their histories and what they were doing, everything from people that were injecting heroin, people that were snorting it. I found out that, you know, lots of things like executives have this line where if they're not injecting, they don't consider themselves having an addiction problem. You know, they can snort it, they can smoke it, you know, people that were addicted to Adderall and other stimulants and using um, cocaine to manage the effects of alcohol and hangovers. And, um, but I do think there was some relief in that. A lot of people thanked me for writing about it, which I thought was really great. I think they wanted especially lawyers, they, they wanted something to happen in the profession to change it. But also, you know, I talked to doctors, I talked to a lot of like people mm-hmm. in technology, um, finance guys and women, things like that. Do you think um, that the legal profession has a, you know, a special kind of problem or is it at all high level, you know, high achieving kind of professions or, or is legal, is, is there something about that that's even more pressurized that, that causes this? Well, I do think that high pressure professions and high stress professions have substance problems for sure. For some reason, law, because of the long hours, the intense stress, and I think there's just a lack of autonomy and the fact that you have to bill your time every six minutes, it causes a lot of depression and anxiety. Actually, 30% of lawyers suffer from depression and 20% from anxiety. But when they're asked about it over the course of their careers, depression is actually at 40%. So you're talking four out of every 10 lawyers has depression. That's a lot of depressed attorneys who are looking for some relief. That's incredible. No, that's incredible. And again, you know, what I was also struck by is this obviously isn't the first time that someone has has died from this kind of high stress legal profession, but it's the first time that there was a writer present to recognize the problem and actually do something about it. I think that's what makes your book special as well, is that you were the right person at this moment to do this. Yes, I, I agree. There, there, you, there was, you know, there are other people who have lost attorneys, you know, loved ones in other ways, but they weren't journalists. So I felt a, a unique responsibility to do that. Yeah, I mean, I hate to look at it like as a perfect storm sort of thing, but, but it really kind of is as far as getting the story out. You, you were the, you know, there, there is sort of a, kind of a destiny quality to you being there for this. It's tragic that it involved the loss that you and your family experienced, but you know right. what? It, uh, you were the person. We're going to take another quick break. We're going to come back, Elaine. I want to talk a little bit about your life um, after the book coming out, what okay. you've done um, moving forward, and also about the fact, the exciting news that your book was recently optioned. We're going to get to that in just a minute. My guest is Eileen Zimmerman talking about her incredible book, Smacked. I'm Crescepting. This is the moment. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. 
The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america you are listening to the moment with chris epting if you have a question or comment about our show please send an email to chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. With Eileen Zimmerman today talking about her book, Smack, I guess we could have taken calls, Eileen, but I'm selfishly <laughs> want to keep our conversation uninterrupted because oh, we've you. covered such incredible stuff. Um, I'm curious, um, you write your book, it... Uh, before that, though, you had a change in life. You left San Diego where you had spent a lot of years, you know, raising your kids. Yeah, 23 years, right. 23 years. And you go back to New York. Well, what's that move like for you to uproot and, and go back to, to you know, from, from whence you came I and know, to yeah. sort of start over back then? What was that like for you? So as soon as my youngest, my son went to college, I did. I sold my house. I I needed to just get out of San Diego as beautiful as it is. And I have a really good group of like friends there, female friends, moms, we all raised our kids together, Mm -hmm. but I just needed some distance because it also represented so much like a really sad, hard marriage, a a divorce, and then Peter's death and all of that stuff. Um, And it was, it was hard to come back. I have, um, I'm from New York. I'm originally born in the Bronx. And my mom lives in in northern New Jersey, and she is older and has Parkinson's. So I felt like I wanted to come back and help take care of her. I have a sister here that does the lion's share of it. So that felt like the right thing to do. And it just felt like I needed to get some distance from San Diego if I was going to write about it. So I came back to to New York thinking, I'm just going to kind of get my head out of what's going on from the scene of the crime, so to speak, and just get some distance from it. And that distance really helped me look at it. And also uh, I finished my New York Times piece there, published that, and then I sold the memoir. And it was it was easier to work it, on it from New York because I wasn't, it's hard to explain. It would, felt like I was in a fishbowl in San Diego. I sure. just kind of needed distance from it so I could look at it uh, from a distance and see it, give it some pers- give some perspective to myself, if that makes sense. It, it, it does. And honestly, I think... It- it reads like fiction in the best of ways. And oh, I that's great if, to hear. Yeah. Is there, was there a certain point where you almost felt like you were writing about somebody else? And did you, were you able to detach yourself to a point where you could look at it almost objectively like a journalist and approach it with, from a fictional standpoint and write it and sort of detach yourself a little bit just to, you know, make sure you got everything in there? I'm trying to think of that. You know, I have to say, I, I did feel detached in the writing, but of course, once it was down on paper and I read it over and I refined it and edited it, I did feel like it was me, but there was a little bit of detachment in writing it because I had to be able to write it and not be caught up in 
all of the emotion, even though there is a lot of emotion in the book, I didn't want it to, I didn't want to break down writing it. I wanted to be able to kind of get through that. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did feel a little bit detached from it as I wrote it. But then after the actual writing was done and going back over it, I felt very connected to the material, I will say. Um, and I wrote uh, my children's name in the book is changed from their actual names just mm-hmm. because in this climate it's so easy sure. to find people and they, my daughter especially who is lovely was getting harassed after the New York Times piece came out which was an odd thing and her name wasn't in it either then so um, oh my goodness yeah just on Facebook and stuff uh, so I I but I did write it with their actual names in it and then I just replaced it because I needed I needed it to be real so sure. that I could remember sure. what I was feeling and what they were feeling and how they were acting. What do you think of today in terms of culture and society and uh, social media, all the things that might help um, facilitate these kinds of addictions and things? I mean, do you make that equation? I mean, what do you think today as a society? Um, do, we, do we push people too hard? Are, are, are the high pressure situations worth it? I mean, what, what are you left thinking after, you know, sort of stumbling into the reality of this, this horrific mess that exists under the surface. Um, yeah. What's, what's your bigger take on it moving forward? Well, yeah, I will say it was quite a lesson in, um, in just life and, and humanity and <laughs> humility. Um, I think what I was left with was two big things. One is that in corporate America today, and of course this would be, I suppose, pre-COVID, but there will be a post-COVID, um, was that we don't have particularly compassionate or understanding workplaces. You know, mm-hmm. you can even see it now when people have, you know, remote work and their kids are, you know, in the frames and stuff. There are, I have heard quite a few stories of workplaces that are not being tolerant, just as many of, as workplaces that are, there are those that also won't tolerate kids running around or dogs, even though they know the situation is really difficult and fraught. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there is a lack of compassion Peter should have been working in a workplace where if he was as sick as he was, somebody could have compassionately pulled him aside and said, I can see you're struggling. Something is going on. That, can I, I be honest? That's what blew my mind is that nobody, at least that we know of, made any sort of overture to what had to have been at a certain point fairly obvious conditions. Absolutely. I mean, th- I, there were needle cover, the covers, like syringe covers in his work bag. So, I mean, I would imagine he was injecting in his office or in the bathroom. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, people at work were around him far more than I was or his kids were. That's ostensibly where he was. Eventually, he was just at home and not showing up. But yes, I mean, there was a long decline for him. There were parents like at back to school night that would ask me, does he have AIDS? Does he have cancer? Is he sick? You know, and I was like, no, he I asked him, you know, he said he's, you know, he's just working a lot. He's not getting enough sleep. So I think that what struck me and when I talked to other professionals too was that they felt especially in law but I would say also in finance that they could not show weakness that they could not um admit to anybody they had a problem even people they they might have trusted they just felt like there was no way you know they couldn't do it and no doubt Peter felt he couldn't and the people he worked with felt it wasn't their business but I wish it was their business I wish it was okay and I'm hoping that the New York Times article and the book are We'll at least start conversations about that. Well, that's um, what I'd wonder. Yeah. This this would seem like mandatory reading at this yes. point. Seriously, yeah. you know, just as a heads up, to, as a primer of what to look out for, of you know, f- sort of first early warning signs that you might yes. notice. Absolutely. I mean, and some law schools are, you know, that's one of the things is having students read it before they start. But also, you know, people in business school, in medical school, um, 
it, it, these are very stressful professions. These are very high-functioning people. A lot of the um, people that were struggling with addictions and that I talked to, including alcohol and lots of other substances, they were very good at being active users and still functioning. I don't know how well, well they no, were you functioning. Know something, yeah. you, you bring something up that I think is important. I Just uh, as a quick aside, I grew up in New York, like you, in the 60s, and my father was part of sort of the Mad Men advertising culture. Ah. And I remember as a kid watching, if I would go to the office, that the uh, every employee, every executive would drink during meetings they wow. would go. They would go to lunch and drink. They would come back, and and secretaries had pictures of you know drinks waiting for a client wow. meeting. They would drink at Grand Central before getting on the train. <laughs> That's they would, true. They would ride home in the bar car. <laughs> right. right. I remember those bar cars from Penn State. And, and then the smoking cars. And then their wives would be waiting at home with a highball. Right. So everybody right. there was sort of a functional alcoholism where everybody yes. was always kind of buzzed, but because everybody was, you didn't really notice it. You know. Absolutely. And I can tell you that, um, you know, this is probably going to be, 2020 is probably going to be the largest year for overdoses in the country, ironically, even though that's not what's causing the most deaths in the country. It's COVID. But there are a lot of people that are drinking all day long. You know, a lot yeah. of people that are isolated or they're by, on the, there's not the kind of the check from work. People, you don't have to sneak into the bathroom. You're just there, you know, in your office in the basement or you've got the door closed. Even if your family's there, it's, it's easier to drink. It's easier to take some pills. It's, you know, right. it, do some numb, lines. Just numb yeah. the pain, yeah. Just numb, numb the everything. pain, right? And there's a lot of pain now. There's the regular pressure of work, plus, you know, you're losing business or you've been furloughed or you're worried about being laid off or pay cuts and things like that. Well, your book, I mean, you look, your book, uh, Smacked, arrives at a very important time. I mean, you can't, you can't plan this sort of stuff. The, the fact that your book arrived when it did, I think, is really oh, important. I know. There's a real, again, fake quality to it. Talk a little bit about the optioning now, because this is recent news, right? Tell us oh, what's yes, happening is, with that. Oh, yes, this is recent news. Um, so in, in June, um, I think it was in the middle of June, um, the actress Elizabeth Moss, who everybody knows from uh, Mad Men, mm-hmm. but also from Handmaid's Tale and many other Invisible, um, like Invisible Man um, it's, she has a ton of movies, and but um, Handmaid's Tale, especially people know her for, and Mad Men. She was Peggy. She and another woman, Lindsay McManus, uh, who's a former William Morris um, agent, mm-hmm. started a f- film production company called Love and Squalor Pictures. And they, um, when they were forming it, they were optioning a few books. Mine's the only nonfiction book, and so we had some conversations about it, and. Um, came to an agreement that works for all of us. And so they optioned the book for film. Um, and uh, so that was great news. I think what happened was Lindsay read it and gave it to Elizabeth Moss, who loved it. And they um, they were wonderful about it. So that's really exciting. So hopefully in the next you know couple of years, there'll be a film. Have you thought about what that might look or feel like? Have they talked to you at all? I mean, what's your initial feeling about how that might? I know it's hard to predict, but do you have a right. sense in your head of how you'd like to see it play out? Well, you know, I, I have to say, I feel really lucky because I wasn't looking for a film deal. And I think a lot of authors, their agents will shop it around to production companies. And I specifically said not to, because I thought that it would be very difficult for my kids to see this story on a screen and have it be someone else's interpretation of what happened. I just felt like that would be damaging. I hadn't counted on how it would feel five years out. And, um, 
Elizabeth Moss was and her, and Lindsay were so kind of compassionate and understanding. I think Elizabeth wants to play me in it. Wow. And they really I know, which is like what how wow. flattering is that? <laughs> I was like, please, you, you know, do that, please. You're young and beautiful and talented, you know. But you know, they she also sees it as my story. And I think my fear was that I there would be like someone playing Peter shooting up somewhere in a hallway. And that I didn't want my kids to see. And she was like, that's not our vision, you know, at all. And I, so I think they see it more as my story, of course, connected to his story, sure. um, but in a really interesting way. And they're both women I completely respect and think are wonderful. And so I think their, their vision of it will be good. I'm hoping that I'll have a hand in it too. Um, so it feels kind of exciting. You know, it also feels kind of surreal <laughs> to be honest. So, um, you know, I feel really again, it, it, You know what? It continues the conversation. It, 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 it keeps the topic relevant and out front. And I think um, that's, that's really Absolutely. positive, you know, it is. And, you know, one thing that was ironic, uh, Chris, about the book was that I thought people would respond to P- to the idea of Peter and his addiction and everything, and they did. But I got a lot of um, email and messages on social media from people that that related to my marriage and feeling disempowered as women, even men who felt that way. One guy wrote me and he said, "Well, th- I was reading about my own marriage and that, you know." And I think I used to think, you know, this was unique to me. And what I have found by writing this book is that all of my experiences aren't that unique. Like lots of people. Well, but again, that's what I think what I was saying earlier, the sort of books within a book, you you have so many different arcs that go on that are relatable for people that, um, you know, especially kind of of our age group, you know, we kind of hit this point about your, you know, parents getting older, all the things we're all collectively going through. And you, again, you, you capture these moments and these breakups and these, um, triumphs and, and, and childbirths, all these different things. Even the way you talked about, you know, planning your, your kids' birthdays, how would you decorate their rooms? I mean, really Aww. beautiful details that just brought the family to life in, in a really meaningful way. And, you know, because that's the idea. I mean, I wrote the book because I wanted to connect with other people. I didn't want to mm. feel so alone. And it's been a really wonderful, gratifying thing. And I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, it's been it's really been heartening to hear other people's stories. And there are so many awful stories, but also stories of recovery and redemption and mm-hmm. hopefulness and just having other women say like, you know what, you're not alone. Let me tell you what happened to me. And it's like, oh gosh, you know what? This puts, this puts my experience in perspective. So in a very selfish way, it's been wonderful. Um, in the last couple of minutes here, describe, you went back to school th- through all of this, right? Talk about that a little bit. So, like you said in the beginning of this interview, I had found Peter and I'd never seen someone dead. And I will say, in the midst of that shock, I just thought, I better think about how I want to live the rest of my life. You know, and I was writing a lot about business, especially for the New York Times and getting burned out. So, I went back to school and I got a master's in social work. I just finished a few weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, And so, I'm hoping uh, to be able to work as a social worker and sort of write about that, you know, kind of these bigger questions about what it means to be human, to live and die, you know, to go through something like the experience we're going through now, but um, from more of a social work, mental health, um, kind of philosophical, you know, life questions perspective. Well, you couldn't have planned. It's just so interesting, I think, watching, again, maybe it's because you're a writer and it's always interesting to relate to other writers and how they find their way and just how you survive, you know, how you manage to to do enough things to keep everything afloat. But your arc as a writer, Eileen, is is, is really something to watch. Thank you so much. Well, it feels like with just your first book and it's easy to imagine where this is going to go and other books that will, you know, flow from some of these themes, perhaps. And it's, I I hope so. You know, I'm 
speak for a lot of people. I'm sure we're anxious to see where it goes. For everyone who has not read Smack yet, it's, it's really a must read. It hit at this time where we were all kind of cloistered away, hopefully reading lots of books. And this is one that if it's not at the top of your list, I really think it should be. Um, I just read it, read it for the second time. So you should try it if you've already Thank read you, it. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> you get more out of it. No, like, like any good book, you know, you watch it again like a good movie. You see things you didn't catch the first time. And, uh, and those things matter. So, Eileen, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Oh, me too, Chris. Thank you for having me. Let's do it. When your movie is all set, promise me, <laughs> absolutely. Promise me we'll do it again, okay? Promise. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. Eileen Zimmerman is the author and journalist. Her book is smacked. I'm Chris Septing. This has been The Moment. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.